Um, one of the fun things about snow days, I think, is the fact that you kind of bunker down and watch old movies. Like, it's not like a no-pressure day. You know, you're just chilling out and hanging out. Um, and I thought recently about a movie that I liked a lot growing up was uh, Back to the Future. Did you ever see it? Yeah. yeah. Classic. Classic Michael J. Fox. Um, if you haven't seen it at all, Michael J. Fox is like this teenage guy in high school, and his best friend is like a 65-year-old like kooky professor. And uh, this guy invents a time machine. It's a DeLorean, uh, which is like a 1980s stainless steel sports car. Uh, <laughs> and if you go 88 miles an hour or faster in the DeLorean, the flux capacitor will send you back in time. And Michael J. Fox is at the wheel of this car. He can go anywhere in time. He can pick lottery numbers. He can like bet on the Super Bowl. Uh, he can see anything he wants in history. He goes back in time and hangs out with his parents when they're in high school. <laughs> but it's a movie, so you got to get through it. Uh, <laughs> And he goes back, and one of the things he's been told his whole life is the story of how his parents met, and that his mom had kind of fallen into kind of like puppy love for his dad after his dad got hit by this car, and she'd kind of taken him up and nursed him back to health, and one thing led to another, and they got married and had kids. And Michael J. Fox goes back in time, and he accidentally stops this from happening. He stops his parents from kind of falling in love with one another. And how he knows that he's really messed up is he looks in his pocket and he has this picture of his brother and his sister and him. And you remember what happens? Like, his brother is, like, fading away. And his sister is fading away. At one point in the movie, like, you can see through Michael J. Fox's hands like a ghost. Um, and he uses this picture, really, to kind of guide him for the whole rest of the story. It's like, he knows when he's doing well and getting his parents back together if the picture is stopped fading and his brother and sister and him have, like, kind of come back into focus. And he knows he's really messing up when he looks down on the picture and he's fading out, or his brother's fading out, or his sister's fading out. And the picture kind of acts as this touchstone for the whole movie of how does he know what his past is supposed to have been? How does he know what his future is supposed to be? Like, how, what is his guide for acting in history, really? And as I thought, saw this movie and I thought about it, I think it raises a really interesting point for us. Um, because there, what is the standard that you use to look at your future? What is the standard that we as a culture use to look at our future? Like, is it how moral I am? Is it economics? Is it war, class conflict, freedom versus despotism, whatever? What is the thing that is the touchstone for my future and for my past? What's the touchstone for my present, really? And people have pointed out that there's a lot of confusion in our culture over this, and it's led to what's called technological optimism and literary pessimism, which are two really big words, but let me break it down for you like this. Do you remember the first time you ever held an iPhone and how cool that was? And like how, all right, you never held an iPhone. <laughs> See me afterwards. <laughs> how cool that was, uh, how awesome it is. Like, it is like the sleekest, like sexiest little gadget ever. Like, no buttons on the outside. Like, you just swipe it and you can, you have apps you can take pictures with it. Like, whatever you want to do, the iPhone is there for you. It's awesome. Um, but on the other hand, people are telling kind of these hopeless stories. That there's not really anything to look forward to. That technology, like, maybe it'll help us out. Maybe it'll destroy us. Maybe it'll be a war with machines. 80s movie reference right there. <laughs> Terminator. Uh, <laughs> 
but people tell these kind of hopeless stories. And think about this. The iPhone is released in 2007. The movie that won a ton of Academy Awards that year was No Country for Old Men, which if you haven't seen it, is a super dark, super depressing movie. It's the kind of movie that you watch with like your three best friends in the world, and then afterwards you eat a bunch of ice cream and watch a comedy movie to feel better about yourself. Like, you need that after No Country for Old Men. And that's the thing that like our society lives in and that we live in a lot of the times, is that technology can do anything. It's so sleek. It's so awesome. It's incredible. There's this incredible pessimism, or optimism. <laughs> but then on the other side, there's this huge pessimism. What kind of stories do we tell ourselves? What's our touchstone for the world? What kind of story do you live in? How do you figure out which news stories are important for you and which ones aren't? Or when somebody sits down with you and says, Hey, like, tell me about yourself. Like, where are you from? What's important to know about you? The way that you answer those questions reveals a lot about how you interpret life. It tells you a lot about your meaning and your purpose. You don't have a time machine to go back and, like, with this picture and figure out, Oh, like, what's important? What's not important? What's your touchstone? What's your thing that you use to look at history? the future? What's your hope, really? And generally when we talk about hope, it means little more than a desire for a better future. You know, I hope I get into a good grad school. I hope I studied enough for this test. I hope she says yes when I ask her out. Like, all that sort of stuff. But the Bible speaks of God's people as having a real and living hope in the world. And hope for us tonight is the assurance that in Christ your faith will be made sight and what you have believed will come true. And our hope that is in spite of darkness, light will prevail. In heaven and earth, love wins. That our story isn't hopeless. And we all long for that, but we all struggle with that too, don't we? And the truth is we can struggle to understand where, where the world is heading. Where we're heading. What is our purpose in life? What can we do to have a meaningful impact in the world? But let me suggest this tonight. That the cross of Christ is the key to understanding both my purpose and the purpose of history. That's why tonight we're going to talk about three things that relate to the cross of Christ. We're going to talk about the cross is the key to understanding history, the cross is the key to understanding you, and the cross is the key to understanding the future. History, you, the future, the cross. So, before we dive into this text tonight, uh, what's happening here? What's going on? We're in the book of Acts. Jesus has come and taught. He's died. He's risen again. He's given the apostles and his followers kind of like the power to go out and speak truth into the world. To welcome people of every tongue and tribe and nation and race into God's kingdom. And he, along that way, he's poured out his spirit on them so they know they're not alone. So they know that their words actually have power in the world. And Peter here is standing up after God has poured out his spirit on them, and he's interpreting what these events are. And he's interpreting them in the light of the cross. So let's read together here, Acts 2, 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray real quick, because we need some help with this one. Father, uh, we need help whenever we open your word. Um, but Lord, especially we, as we come tonight, and we think about what does it mean um, that you're at work now in the present? What does it mean that you're bringing things into the future that we don't have any control over? Lord, what does it mean for us to have a meaningful impact in the world? And to live in a true way in accordance with the fact that you came and you were a man and you died and you rose again. God, help us with that. Help us to know both your grace and your truth tonight. And lead us as we go out from here. In your sins, let me pray. Amen. So first of all, before we even get into this, let's talk about what like, kind of the prophetic vision here is like. Have you ever driven uh, west towards Asheville? And as you get like from like kind of the flat, like where we're at right here, central plain of North Carolina, and you go through the fit- foothills and you start to head up towards Na- not Nashville, <laughs> Asheville. Uh, we don't say Nashville here. <laughs> as you start to head up towards Asheville, uh, you start to see the mountains appear, right? And it looks like at first, oh, it's just one kind of big flat mountain here in the front. As you get a little bit closer, it's like, oh, there's, there's two mountains there. And as you get closer into that and you start to drive up the mountains and into the mountains, you realize, oh, there's, it's not just one big flat thing, but there's all this world of valleys and rivers and streams and like little gas stations that you pull over and it's like crazy little country towns where like you can go whitewater rafting, right? Like there's all these things happening. Yeah, that's right. There's all these things happening between these two mountains. And this is similar right here to what uh, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament prophet of Joel. He's talking about two things, really, two big mountains. And the first mountain is here where it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men see visions. Old men dream dreams. Male servants, female servants. In those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. That's kind of the first mountain there. Commentators have talked about and what that is, that's God doing a new work in history and showing and showing the world, kind of through what we're going to see here in the book of Acts, that something new is happening. That there's this big mountain that's in response to Jesus' death and resurrection that God is showing and validating and vindicating, hey, something new is happening here with my people. And these people are going to, and you, as you go through Acts, dream dreams, they're going to do miracles, like things that we don't normally get to experience, right? And then on the other side of this mountain, Joel's point pain for us, it says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And it goes down to verse 21 there. And what he's talking about there is that Joel, as a prophet in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before this happens, is looking at history and he's seeing these two mountains. God doing something new in the church and the end of the world here from a distance. And he doesn't see all the things in between. And so they look to Joel, the prophet, as though there's two mountains right here, but he doesn't see what's in between that. So us right here in our time in history, 
We live in the valleys, in those little towns where you go whitewater rafting. Like, we live with this, this big mountain behind us of the work and acts, of the dreams they do, the miracles they've done, and we look forward to also the end of the world, um, the end of history over here. So that's kind of an overview of what this prophecy is like, because that's a big deal. Um, so what does that mean for us, though, if we're here in the middle of things? What does it mean if we're kind of in the middle of these two mountains right here? Christians believe that we can live, we can work, we can enjoy the good things of this world, and we can mourn the terrible things of this world because of what's happened with Jesus' life. That if there's this first coming that he's done, where he came to people, and people were living and working and doing their normal business, and God is born, and he has a ministry, and he dies, and he rises again. Then we, we also believe that uh, he's going to return again one day to, do, to make an end of history, to make an end of evil in the world. And, that's, and that there will be people who are going to be going to work. There's people who are going to be taking tests and going to school. There's people making love and sleeping and dying and being born. And Jesus will return and that will be the end of history. So we believe as Christians that we can live and work and enjoy these good things in the world and mourn the things that are terrible and have hope for the future because of Jesus' first coming and look to the future, that, to that mountain that's in the distance for Jesus' second coming. You see, only Christianity says, yes, death is a reality, but it's not the ultimate reality. Death doesn't win. Love wins. And this is important because if you kick the story of Jesus to the curb, what do you do with death? Ultimately, you end up with a hopeless story. You can try to be good. You can try to do well in the world. But in the end, death wins, right? And other religions have said that, you know, if you, have, if you want to have hope, then be a good person and one day you'll get to heaven. But what about all the things in this world that you love? <laughs> like, what about the fact that, like, I love, like, you love coffee? You love chocolate? You love the fact that, like, there are... There is an animal somewhere in the world with a really long neck and a long black tongue and it eats trees from the top or leaves from the top of trees. Like giraffes are cool. Clue <laughs> you into what that animal is. Or the fact that uh, the fact that there's a there are dolphins in the sea and they can see things with sound that their brain shoots out in the water. Like that's crazy. And that's really cool. And we shouldn't we should want to love these things. And to abandon the world is to abandon that stuff to death. And Christians don't want to do that. And modern secular philosophies have kind of said, like, what is hope? What is hope? The world is ultimately hopeless. The best that you can do now is enjoy a little bit of life, maybe pass on something to your kids before you die, but ultimately they'll, they'll die too. However, Christians have looked at the Bible and they've said that the key to meaningful action in the world is to see your life through the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That this is a story, like so many others that other people have talked about, of a God dying and rising. But only the Bible dares put names and dates to this story. Only the Bible calls this history. And it tells us something beautiful to a hopeless world, and that it dares it to call it a lie. And that's our hope in the fact that Jesus rose and died, or died and rose again. And, you know, almost as long as I've been able to read, I've loved comic book stories, like Batman, Superman, the X-Men, all those things right now. Um, and one of my favorite kind of themes in these stories is that the heroes get their powers through some sort of, like, radioactive explosion 
or the death of someone they loved. And what starts off as this tragedy actually becomes a thing that they use to help people and to fight against evil and injustice in the world. And what you have in the death of Jesus is a terrible tragedy. The only truly innocent, truly good person ever is killed unjustly. But in his resurrection, you have an explosion of joy. And the fallout from that explosion isn't lethal, but it goes out and it gives life. And because of it, you can go out and you can serve in the world and be confident that what you do matters. That the things that you love aren't going to be lost to death or to darkness. Because the key to history is not the tragedy of death, but the key to history is joy from the good news of Jesus' life. Look here at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon that name. People who struggle with racism will be saved if they call on the name of Jesus. People who struggle with their sexuality, people who have a long list of people they slept with or struggle with pornography, to call on the name of Jesus is to be saved. Because to call on the name of Jesus is to say, not my name, Lord, but I want to be called under Jesus' name. And that God would look at you one day at the end and say, because of Jesus, I have nothing against you. I look at you and I only see his goodness. I look at you and I only see what, what we love in him and his light and his life. And the things that you've done, they don't matter. The things you've left undone, they don't matter. Because of Jesus, I love you. And I count you as part of my child. So how is this hope the key to you? How is this hope the key to you? Take a step back from the text here and think about its context, right? What's the stuff that's going on around this text? This is the apostles and maybe a couple of hundred other people standing up in front of a crowd of folks, several thousand people probably. <laughs> and in this crowd, very likely are some of the same people that killed Jesus. And chances are, some of those people are thinking about killing these folks. Can you imagine standing there how daunting that would be? And you know, every Christian is called in some way to take part in letting Jesus be known to the world and calling people to that. And you know, and there's quite a few more Christians now than there were then, but that can still feel pretty lonely here, can't it? Or pretty daunting. Especially when you feel like, I'm the only person in my family who believes in this. Or I'm the per only person in this club who follows Christ. Or only a person in this class who, who follows Him. And they may not put me to death for my faith, or they will laugh at me, or they might think that I'm dumb. And that might feel like a little bit like death. So how do we have hope in that? How do the apostles have hope? Let me suggest two things to you that would give you hope here. That God is at work, and that your work matters. How is God at work here? Peter's standing up there, he's preaching in front of a crowd of people that don't know him, that aren't necessarily familiar with his message, don't necessarily care about what he has to say, that might try to kill him if they got a chance. But he can have confidence. And why is that? Justin Clement, the RUF campus minister at UGA, puts it like this. That we believe that God is at work. And that means that we have what's called a theology of expectation. That we expect God to save people. We expect God to grow us up and to mature us as Christians. That we expect God to save folks, to reach folks, to grow me as a, as a minister 
as a man of God and to grow you as godly men and women. That, that's what we expect. I expect that for you all. Because I expect God is at work in your lives. And that means that you can have confidence that even if you don't see big flashy things happening, or have things like visions, that God is using your community groups. And he's using your time riding together to serve at table. Or your awkward conversations with friends who don't believe. And that you aren't alone in your work. That your work is actually part of God's larger work. Because we expect him to be at work here at Carolina. Look also at Peter's sermon from the prophet Joel. What is he doing here? He's reading from God's word. And then he's explaining that word in the light of Jesus' life. And that is the way that God has always used to grow people, to grow his kingdom, to reach people. That he's used his Bible. That's crazy, right? You want to grow or you want people to, to become Christians or you want to serve God's kingdom in a missional way? Then use the things that he's promised to use. Use his word. Pray for people. Pray for yourself. Be faithful with God's word. And God has promised to work in these things. You see, your hope if you're a Christian, more than having money or power or sex, is that God has really acted in history. And you know, we will all give our lives to something, whether implicitly or explicitly. So give your life to something that matters. What would that mean for us? I think it would mean this, that you're called here as students. Right now, that your primary vocational calling is to come to Carolina and to learn and to study, and to read. Um, but you're called here as students who follow Christ. Should you study hard? Yes. Should you excel where you can? Yes. Should you think about the next step after UNC? Yes. But do that as a Christian. In effect, say to your studies, you know, you will have my time and my effort, but you will not have my soul. And you don't measure me. God measures me. And first and foremost, all my studies, all my energies are for the Lord. Because He's God, and you aren't. And wherever I study, wherever I go from here, I do it for the Lord. Because here's the deal, that we aren't saved for ourselves. We're saved for others. Our talents aren't given for ourselves. They're given for the good of others. You know, if you're going to go out and be a lawyer, then go and be a good lawyer. And yeah, make them enough money to live, but don't live for money. Or get married and have sex with your spouse. But, you're de- but put those desires in service of following Christ and of living according to the way that he made you and not the way that a sexually broken culture tells you to live. And have power because you're smart and you're talented and you can lead and you're made in God's image. And so you're going to have power. But your power isn't given for you so you can make yourself great. It's given to you so that you can serve others and help them become great in God's kingdom. And that's our hope, and that's our expectation. That God would use us, our money, our sex, our power, our greatest desires of our heart for His kingdom, according to His word, through prayer, through the faithful presence of His people. So let's look at the key to the future here. I'm going to unlock the key to the future. Watch this. <laughs> All right, so take a step back and look at what Peter and the apostles are doing here. There are just a few people, a few people here, standing up in front of all these other folks, and Peter's giving a sermon, and for the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see these people going out into the world without any sort of written in stone promise that the words they say, the beatings they take, 
the life they call other people to live is going to take hold and grow. They're simply going to go and do these things in the faith and the hope that what they do matters, not just for the people that they stand face to face with, and not just for people like us who benefit from it literally thousands of years later on another continent, but that the people, that the benefits that come from their faithfulness, from the preaching of the word, through prayer, are going to be enjoyed forever. Why do we serve the poor? Or why do we care for one another? Or why do we call people to repent and believe in the good news? Does any of this matter in the long term? You know, if Jesus doesn't return in the next 200 years, next 2,000 years, next 20,000 years, do you think that people will have wiped out poverty or injustice or racism? No, those things are still going to exist. Those things are just part of what, how people are in a broken world. But we can be hopeful. And we can act hopefully in apparently hopeless situations where you feel alone. You feel like, what, like, what is the benefit of me serving these people? What is the benefit of me pouring into this freshman's life? What is the benefit of me thinking about the next four years after college? Because we can do what little bit of good we're doing now as an offering to the Lord. Almost like an enacted prayer where we take the things that we have, the things that God's given us, and we hand it to the Lord. And we say, God, please take my work and take my life and take my energy and my effort and my prayers. The things that I, I say in private, behind closed doors to you and only you hear them, take them and use them for your kingdom and use them forever. And the things that we do in public one day, if you're a big shot politician, God, take my, my words and my big deeds and use them for your kingdom and make them last forever. For the goodness of the world. For the hope of the world. You know, that's all of our hope. That God would use our work. That God would use things like meeting together on a Tuesday night when it's rainy and Maryland is playing. That right now matters. And it matters forever. And that's a big deal, y'all. That's what it is to live by faith. That God will use the things forever that we do. I'll end with this. The book of Revelation, a book about the end of the world, that ends with a scene that takes place after Jesus has returned and he's done away with evil and sin and death and God's heavenly city has come down and people of every tribe and tongue and language and race stream into that city with the best of their culture and the best of their work and their effort. Books, art, good food, songs, dance, funny jokes, families, friendships. Everything good about the world is brought into God's city and made new. And C.S. Lewis, at the end of his fantasy series, The Chronicles of Narnia, in a book called The Last Battle, he gives a picture of what this end is like. We get a glimpse of it. And he shows us that the end of Narnia has come and gone. Aslan, the Jesus figure, this huge, glorious, mighty lion, he's done away with evil in the world. <coughs> and the history of Narnia has come to a close, too. And all the children who've been part of the great Narnia series and all the things that have happened are standing there, and they walk into this door that leads to the kind of the new country that Aslan's leading them into. And they're sad. And Peter... One of the children sees his sister Lucy and she's crying. And he says, what Lucy? You're not crying. 
with Aslan ahead and all of us here. And Lucy says, don't try to stop me, Peter. I'm sure that Aslan would not. I'm sure it's not wrong to mourn for Narnia. It's not wrong to mourn for the world. And they all have a good cry. But as they walk further into that new country, they start to see the things in the old country that they've loved. Old friends they thought they'd never see again. People they'd loved and who've been gone for a long time. And green spaces with trees and flowers and rivers and fields. All these things they thought are lost and dead are actually new and returned to them. Everything that they thought is gone is returned. And through Aslan's work, through Jesus' work, it's better than new. And Lewis goes on to say, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right hoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old country is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Beloved, the reason you love the things in this world is because sometimes you get a glimpse of the glory for which those things are made. And our hope is that it will be remade through God's work. And if you love the idea of being a physical therapist, or a missionary, or a lawyer, or a mom, or a dad, then go and do that and offer your work to the Lord. And trust Him to preserve those good things about this world that point to a new and better day. And that because of Jesus' work on the cross, because of His life, because of His resurrection, you can look back and say, God has defeated death once. And he will do it again. And that is our hope. And that is the thing that gives us hope as we move forward tonight and for the rest of our lives. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your work, for your word. Thank you for your work, for your spirit. God, that you would give us hope in the midst of history. Lord, that our hope isn't in technology. It's not in money. It's not in sex. It's not in power. But our hope, Lord, is in you. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would trust more firmly in that hope. And God, so we don't speak in abstracts. Lord, so that we would trust more firmly in you, in your son Jesus, in his work and his person, that he has loved us, that he has given his life for us. And Lord, that he is coming and he will restore all things and make all things new. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.